So I went to University of Georgia at the University of Georgia, uh, which has, I, I believe in the downtown in Athens, Georgia, there are more bars per square foot than anywhere in the world. But I heard the other day in Common Ground that Charlestown used to have more bars per square foot than anywhere on planet Earth. So it's either where I live now or where I went to college that has more bars on planet Earth per square mile. Um, at the University of Georgia, right across from the bars in the downtown Main Street, Broad Street, are the arches. And the arches are the symbol, and I don't mean McDonald's, like the arches are the symbol for the University of Georgia. They're really the symbol for the state of Georgia. It's on the state seal, those arches. Uh, and they're on North Campus. And you would go, the arches symbolize UGA. And there was, a, there was an unwritten rule that you never walked under the arches until the day you graduated. Uh, and so you would go over from North Campus to downtown, and you would walk around the arches if you were a student there. The arches represented UGA. So to pass through the arches as an ungraduated undergrad uh, meant that you were risking not graduating from college. Uh, you were risking doom and despair. Uh, you were showing disrespect and arrogance to the history of the University of Georgia. And passing through before you graduated was a, a sort of a symbol that you were a person who would take shortcuts in life rather than take the hard road. Now, the day you graduated, you would go take your photo under the arches. And for the first time, you would pass through the arches at the University of Georgia. And so that symbolized like graduating and moving into the world of more bars per, you know, capita or square foot than anywhere in the world, right? So that, that symbol of those arches, those black arches with the light bulbs on them, represented the reality of the idea of the University of Georgia. That symbol, those arches, represented um, this. It, it represented everything that it meant to be about the University of Georgia. And I think about things in our life that mean more than the thing that it is. You know what I mean? There are just some things that we see them, and they mean more than just the symbol itself. So I want to show you the first time that happens in the Bible. Genesis 1. I'm going to read, I think, four verses to you. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 26. And let me just say that I think these are some of the most theologically rich verses in the Bible and some of the most culturally applicable. But in the interest of time, we're not going to dive into what it says about gender and how God created people equal and, and men and women have equal dignity. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk this morning about is this a literal seven-day creation or is it not? We're not going to get into any of that. We can do that some other day. I'm just going to read you these verses and we're going to talk about the implications of them this morning. So it says in verse 26, uh, after five days of creating, on the sixth day it says, then God said, let us make man our humankind and our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skip ahead to verse 31 with me, if you will. It says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the Hebrew, there's no word for very, so it just says good, good. 
I love that. God saw everything he had made, and it was good, good. It was so good that you couldn't just say it was good once. You had to say it was good twice. And this is the first time that happened. Up to this point, God saw what he had made, and he just said it was good. But he sees humans, and he sees the totality of it all. And he says it was good, good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, Jews and Christians believe uh, fiercely that humankind are made in the image of God. But here's, here's a sneaky little truth. They're not sure what that means. So I remember as a child, my mom reading us a little kid's illustrated storybook Bible. And, and we would read this story because it was the first story, right? And we would talk about, even as, uh, as an older child, but not yet a preteen, what it meant to be made in the image of God. And my mom would tell me this one thing, but theologians think it could be three things. I want to tell you what it could mean to be made in the image of God. One, it could mean that we are, because God is relational, we're relational. If you look at verse 26, God says, Now let us make man in our image. From the very beginning of Scripture, God is Trinity, and He exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they didn't need humans. God didn't make people because He was lonely. He was existing in perfect community among Himself, but because God is relational. So people are made to be relational. Nobody's made to be a lone ranger. Life is made to be lived with other people. And when we exist in community, we're reflecting something of God's image. And therefore, hermits who just totally withdraw and know no one are missing something about what it means to be made in God's image. The second thing it could mean is that God has given people dominion uh, over creation as the pinnacle of creation. He says in verse 28, now you rule over creation. I think lions are majestic. I love looking at lions uh, when I go to the zoo. But lions aren't made to rule creation. I love, uh, Noah went through this phase as a kid where uh, he loved orcas. Uh, uh, and man, he would love those killer whales. And we had to go to SeaWorld and see the killer whales. And those things are amazing. They can destroy anything uh, in the water. But they're not the height of creation. God made humans and said that we were to exercise dominion over creation. And we're not just owners of earth, we're stewards of earth. So there's something ungodly about someone killing an African giraffe just for sport. And ungodly about someone killing, about someone abusing an animal. There's something ungodly about someone abusing the earth. We weren't made to be owners of the earth and all that's on it. We were made to be stewards of it, managers of it. The third thing it could mean, and this is what I was raised to believe as a kid, is that we were made as moral beings who have a soul or a conscience and have the ability and the choice of right and wrong. The ability to reason and make right or sinful decisions is certainly part of our humanity. And God gave us the ability to do that. And that's different. Like my cats, who Natalie may take 27 photos of our cats around Charlestown on their leashes for, through our eyes. Like my cats cannot make moral or sinful decisions. Like when they nip at us or they, you know, paw at us, they're not sinning. They're just being cats. Like they're doing what it is that they do. Now, some of you think that cats are inherently sinful and Carla will have a talk with you after church to convince you <laughs> otherwise. Like, and that's good. So those animals don't have moral choices. Humans do. And God will hold people accountable for our moral choices and especially what all of humanity does with Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe it's all three of those, relational, 
uh, earth stewards, moral beings. Maybe it's all the above. What it means is not the point of this story when it was written thousands of years ago. The point of this is how it's different than every other religion around it. And this is important. You got to understand this. So all religions in the ancient Near East, so from Egypt over to Greece and over into what's today the Middle East, had all these creation stories. And their creation stories had three points. And I want to tell you the three points of an ancient Near Eastern creation story. Uh, they, they pretty much tended to do three things. One, there was a God who made a king to represent him. In all the ancient Near Eastern stories, you would end up with a king made by God to represent God. The king represented God on the earth. The second thing that was in every one of these stories, the king was always made in God's image and had therefore had divine authority to rule his people or the earth. He was mandated by God to rule. The third thing that was different was only, that was, un, that was in all these stories, only God, only the king was intended to represent God. That was unique. All the other humans, there are some stories where the humans were basically created to be like marbles that the, the gods would thump around, but the king was unique and the king represented God. And so you get this story in Genesis and this is the first religion that presents these ideas a little differently. So if we lay over the Jewish Christian view of creation against those uh, other ancient Near Eastern views, we see one big difference. And here's how the Jewish Christian scriptures would interpret these ideas. One, it would say God made everyone to represent him, not just the king. Barb is a representative of God. Chadwick is a representative of God. Renee is a representative of God. We were all made to represent God, not just a president or a king or a queen or a ruler. The second thing that the, the Bible teaches us is that God gave everyone authority as stewards. He said, all of humanity is meant to be stewards. Again, not just the king. And all those other stories, the king ruled and was the manager of the earth. Here, it's all humanity. And the third uh, difference is that all the people bear God's image. Like, can you imagine if Jamie had a Burger King crown on today and he came in and said, hey, uh, I represent God. I bear his image. I don't know what all the rest of you suckers are, but you're something less. Have a great day. Just, I mean, that was how the ancient Near Eastern world worked. Whoever wore the crown represented God and whoever didn't was less than God's image. And the Bible says something different. God says something different. In a sense, we're all made to live and rule as royalty. Like the arches represent God's identity, you and I are made to represent God's identity. Everyone that we run into is made to represent God's identity. And the Christians who understood this changed history. The first thing that Christians did to, to change the world was uh, they would take abandoned babies who were thrown on the trash dump because this happened frequently in the Roman Empire. They would go to the trash dump and find babies and bring them home and adopt them. And that was one way that Christianity spread. The second thing Christians would do, and this is documented by non-Christian uh, historians, when a plague would begin to hit a city, all the pagans would leave. They'd be like, it's time to go to New Hampshire. Time to get out of here. There's uh, somebody coughed, it's not looking good, and everybody would leave for New Hampshire and Maine, right? The Christians would stay behind, and they would go and take 
the dead bodies often and bury them and bury them with honors, and they would nurse the sick. That's where hospitals came from. That's a Christian concept created by Christians. They would take care of the sick and often nurse people back to health, which while pagans were dying off, the Christians were learning ways to preserve one another. And out of seeing your life saved, you would often come to faith. They would, um, Christians were the ones who fought for the end of, of slavery, of human slavery. Go read Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce. It tells a beautiful account of an English politician who is a follower of Jesus fighting to end the slave trade in the British Empire. Christians have defended the rights of the elderly historically when most people have tried to write them off and just dismiss them. Christians have gone and visited prisoners. Jesus commands us to visit other Christians in prison. Christians have defended the immigrants and the aliens. It's so fascinating to me right now the, the way that our country and our culture is dealing with immigration because certainly there are political laws that have to be uh, recognized. But also if we're Christians, we live in two kingdoms. We live in, as citizens of America. We also live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, everyone bears the image of God regardless of what color their passport is or what country is written on their passport. Christians ought to be leading this conversation about immigration, not behind in it. Christians have shaped history by their care for the mentally and physically disabled. It's Christians who have fought so often for the rights of the unborn and for the rights of the mom who is put in the difficult decision of whether to terminate a life or to keep a life. Christians who are for the image of God and people need to fight on both ends for the good of life because all of life bears the image of God. And Christians have even uh, shown dignity to their persecutors and enemies and killers in Christian history. Why? Because everyone is made in God's image and has worth and dignity and should be valued. This is so uniquely Christian. This is such a uniquely Christian idea. And our culture continues to slide down the slippery slope where, where we determine more and more who has value and who doesn't. And we try to do, uh, we try to expedite the process for the people we deem not to have value. And as Christians, we fight for the image of God and all people. Now, here's a spoiler alert for next week. The big problem, you know, we want, Natalie watched on vacation that show, Love It or List It. Has anybody ever watched that show? I hate that show. I hate it. I'm going to tell you why. Every episode, these people are getting this baller update on their house, and 20 minutes in without fail, they're going to find something behind some stud wall, and half their budget is going to go, and half their project's going to go. I'm like, you dum-dums, why did you sign up for this show? You knew they were going to find something in your house that you didn't know was there, and now you're not getting your walk-in closet or whatever. Here's the love it or list it, spoiler alert, bad moment of this uh, image of God thing, right? We've lost that relationship with God due to sin. We've, and, uh, and that sin is personal. Like I choose to sin and you choose to sin. And I also inherited sins from my parents. So we're all sinners. So out of that, we've lost that beautiful relationship that we see in Genesis 1.1. And another problem is because we've lost that, we've lost on some level the image of God in our lives. We see things in our culture and we say, that's not, God's, that's, that, God didn't intend that. Have you ever seen something and just thought God didn't intend for that to happen or for it to be that way? That's 
a very tragic result of Genesis 3. And we'll talk about that in the days to come. So the best photos, how many of you got a camera? Did several of you get them? The best photos, in my opinion, will be photos that will recapture the image of God on some level and, and see what could be or what we were meant to be. And the saddest photos will be the photos that capture our brokenness, that capture the brokenness and the distance that we're currently living from God. And you see, we see this stuff in Charlestown. We see stuff in Charlestown where we say, oh man, that's almost Eden. That's so beautiful. And we see things that that is one step away from the gates of hell. That's so broken and so sad. So there's a really beautiful moment in this project to capture something of this Bible story. So let me just give you three quick things about the image of God in everyday life. And I mean, this will be quick, not just preacher quick. One, we need to remember our divine origins, our God's image and the mandate on our lives. And also remember that we've fallen from grace. And we need God through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to redeem us back to what we were meant to be. We can become what we were meant to be, but we can't become that on our own. Only the gospel, accepting Jesus' offer of life and salvation, turning from ourselves, restores us to what we were meant to be. We need to remember that in ourselves, and we need to remember it in others. It's easy to forget it in others, that they're made in the image of God. Second thing, we need to proclaim to ourselves and to others, you are made in God's image. I know you well enough to know that some of you are way harder on yourself than God would ever choose to be on you. And you need to remember in those moments of self-loathing and self-deprecate, what's that, like beating yourself up, (laughs) you need to remember self-deprecation, that you are made in God's image and are so precious to him that he sent his son to die for you. And your baristas and the person who cuts you off in traffic and your coworkers and your family members are made in God's image as well. And we need to proclaim that they are made in God's image. So they're a symbol representing his identity and we need to fight for the implications of that. Looking for, pointing out, celebrating, and fighting for God's image in everyday life. And number three, we need to get a camera and capture images of, uh, capture the image of God or the lack of it in your daily life. It surprised me the people that said, what am I supposed to take photos of? Like, man, take photos of life. Like, we just take photos of your life. And Jason said, he said, I think you're going to get a ton of photos of the monument. I said, I'm not. I don't think we'll get tons of photos. I don't go to the monument very often. I don't know how often you go to it. I don't, I don't make my way up there very often. But man, I love watching my kids. I love watching my friends and I love hanging out and spending time. That's Charlestown to me. It's not the monument or the gaslight district. It's the people. And there's something beautiful and I'm hopeful that will recapture the image of God in our daily life. And so I want to encourage you as a real practical thing this week. If you're getting coffee and you've got your phone, I want to encourage you to put your phone in your pocket or your purse and just see the person serving you coffee. So often we can kind of come up to the register and be on our phone and we just glance up and we don't give people the dignity that they deserve as a, someone made in the image of God. And I want to encourage you, and, and sadly for me, I don't know if you're like this, I can sometimes rob the dignity uh, from people who I should be the closest to. There's so many times I'm, I'm, I'm 
hearing Natalie, but not listening to Natalie. I'm seeing my kids, but not really seeing my kids. And when we do those things, we're making theological proclamations with our lives about the image of God or the lack thereof in people's lives. So I want to encourage you just for a week to really be present and really see things. And and in doing so and speaking to people and making eye contact and all of those things, uh, returning the image of God to people because we forget, we forget, you know. In the South, we, we've been in the South, I was in the visiting family for the last 12 days. In the South, everybody speaks to you. It's a little nerve wracking, like total strangers make eye contact with you. And um, for me, at first, I used, to, I used to do that living here. You kind of stop making eye contact. You walk down the street. I, I, it just, you pick that habit up. And, um, and so now when I go to the South and everybody's looking at you, like somebody's looking at me like this as they're walking toward me. I'm so afraid somebody's going to jump out from an alley and like hit me in the back of the head and steal my wallet. Like, why are they looking at me? I'm not used to people. Hey, how y'all doing? Like on the street. I'm just, that's so, that's not here, you know? And, um, but there's something beautiful about that. There's something beautiful about seeing people and really taking the time to look people in the eyes Ask them how they're doing. And I think if Jesus planted himself in this neighborhood, first of all, he wouldn't take 27 photos of the monument. He would take 27 photos of the best and the worst of this neighborhood and what the gospel has to offer and speak into that. Let me pray for us.